listening to Humanize Me with Bart Campolo. Hey everybody and welcome to the show. It is hard sometimes to have a non-political podcast in a political world. And right now it's hard to have a non-current events podcast in a world in which current events just keep crashing through the front door. In this moment, and I don't know when you're going to listen to this podcast, but and frighteningly, there's a real possibility that by the time you do, the mass shootings in El Paso and in Dayton will not be the most recent ones. But there's no denying that we're in a moment right now of real trouble and real fear and real anxiety. And I kind of don't feel like I need to add my voice to, to the common sense that you would expect that I would agree with about limiting people's access to weaponry, about banning assault rifles and getting weapons of war out of our daily lives. Smarter people than me, more articulate people than me are going to address that stuff. Um, but there was a moment in this most recent thing that I feel like I do need to say something about because one of my great humanist heroes, Neil deGrasse Tyson, ended up on the wrong side of the conversation, as he does not often do. I always liked Neil deGrasse Tyson because I felt like in comparison with some of the other scientists, Dawkins and, and Harris, I feel like he is a flesh and blood person who really can feel the emotional needs of the people he's talking to, but boy, not this time. Uh, he, he sent out a message. I mean, you, you, if you haven't heard of it, you probably will. Where he, he very quickly after the, after the shooting in Dayton, he sent out, in the past 48 hours, the USA horrifically lost 34 people to mass shootings. And then he quoted some objective facts as scientists are wont to do. On average, across any 48 hours, we also lose 500 to medical errors, 300 to the flu, 250 to suicide, 200 to car accidents, 40 to homicide via handgun. And this is often our emotions respond more to spectacle than to data. Yay. I mean, obviously his facts are correct, but that is so not the point. And, uh... Trevor Noah, I think, said it best. He said, you know, first of all, timing, just timing. And he talked about the kinds of things that you say in certain situations that you don't say in other situations, even though they're just as true. But it's not the right place. It's not the right time. 
And obviously, Neil deGrasse Tyson in this one was emotionally tone deaf. But Noah went on, Trevor Noah went on to say that that the, the difference between medical errors and the flu and suicide and car accidents are people are trying to stop those things. People are trying. And that was his thing. He said, the big difference is trying. And he, and, he, and he pointed out that when it comes to this mass shooting thing, it really looks as though the people in power, the people in a position to, to change legislation, to change policy are not trying. They're talking, they're thinking and praying, but they're not, they're not trying. And, and I thought Trevor Noah was really eloquent about that, but it was funny because what he failed to say was what my wife said. She said, yeah, she said to me, it's not just about the trying. She said, it's that I'm not as afraid of medical errors. I'm not as afraid of the flu or, or suicides because I'm sorry about those things and I want to stop those things, but nobody's trying to hurt me. Nobody's, nobody's trying to terrify me. And she said, that's what makes a mass shooting different. It's not just the number of people who get hurt. It's the intention. That, you know, so Neil deGrasse Tyson, what he should have said is, you know, our emotions respond more to intention than they do to scale. Because the scale of those other things might be bigger. But the intention is what terrifies me. The idea that somebody purposed in their heart to go out and hurt a bunch of people and to kill a bunch of people they didn't even know. The guy in Las Vegas up there in that room shooting down, the the amount of planning that went into that attack, that's what upsets me. The intelligence and the thoughtfulness and the care with putting on body armor and planning things out. From Columbine all the way up to this day, all these hundreds and hundreds of mass shootings, it's it's that it, uh, incompetence, our inability to overcome problems. I can accept. Suicides upset me, but they don't terrify me. Incompetence I can accept, but not unfocused malice. It's, it's the malice in all of this. It's the anger and the hatred and the contempt for other human beings that's so upsetting to me. Yeah, I felt like saying to Neil deGrasse Tyson, look, there are a lot of things that are more dangerous than a mass shooter, but there aren't many that are more upsetting. And and that's that's the reality is I think a lot of us right now, we're just upset because we don't know how many people there are out there who want to hurt us. And we don't know how to spot them before they do. Now, to his credit, to his credit, and this is something that I don't think is going to be widely reported on, so I wanted to bring it up. Yeah, I was mad at Neil deGrasse Tyson, and then I was proud of him for issuing a real apology once he figured out how wrong he was. He didn't say I was misquoted. He didn't say this was out of context. He didn't say what I really meant was. He said, listen, I was wrong. I was trying to do something and uh, and I got it wrong. He said on Facebook, 
My intent was to offer objectively true information that might help shape conversations and reactions to preventable ways we can die. Where I miscalculated was that I genuinely genuinely believed the tweet would be helpful to anyone trying to save lives in America. What I learned from the range of reactions is that for many people, some information, my tweet in particular, can be true but unhelpful, especially at a time when many people are either still in shock or trying to heal or both. So if you are one of those people, I apologize for not knowing in advance what effect my tweet could have on you. I am therefore thankful for the candor and depth of critical reactions shared in my Twitter feed. As an educator, I personally value knowing with precision and accuracy what reactions anything that I say or write will instill in my audience. And I got this one wrong. And I appreciate that. If you're a scientist, you better learn. You better learn when you see data. And he got some data and he got some reason and he got some explanations and he responded. And so I'm not mad anymore at Neil deGrasse Tyson. But I think there's an object lesson in there for all of us who think that facts matter and who are truth oriented and who want people to deal with reason and, 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 and objective stuff. And that is that people respond emotionally to things that they feel like they can't control and to things that they feel like they can't necessarily escape and to things that they that, that create uncertainty in their lives. And whether that's a religious, dogmatic doubt or whether that's a mass shooter, anything that makes us scared, um, anything that makes us feel like there might be somebody out there who wants to hurt us is a, is a time for comfort. It's a person who needs to be comforted most of all, not educated, comforted. You can educate a person a whole lot better if you uh, make them feel safe first. All right. I usually don't get all sermonical. And so, you know, I, I probably ought to put something before this introduction that says, listen, if you don't want to hear a little disquietation about stuff, skip forward. But I, I didn't do it. So, so, so if you made it this far, sorry. You know what I'm not sorry about? I am not sorry about the huge thunderstorm that literally just opened up and started outside my window. I don't know if you can hear it, but it is monumental. And it is so gratifying to me to live in a part of the world where natural acts of precipitation happen on a massive scale on a regular basis. It speaks to me in a cool way. I, I, I can't really explain it, but it's, it's a great thing and it's happening right now and I'm not sorry. You know what else I'm not sorry about since I'm, 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 I'm on the sorry, not sorry thing? I am not sorry that I have a lot of shout outs to do this week. We got more people on the team. And so Rob Shrek and Clint Kempster and Michael Tenbrink and Phil Maynard, Monica Winter, 
Johnny Drimmer. Oh my gosh. Some of these names I know. Johnny Drimmer is a wonderful therapist in California who is the one who got me into, the one who said to me, listen, I've seen you talk to students. You ought to just talk to people who are going through stuff um, on a professional basis. And that's how my whole counseling and coaching thing got started was Johnny Drimmer just looking out for me. Craig Pratt, Brian Lawson, Jeff Ford, Joshua Oxley, Joshua Fowler. We got two Joshuas in one week. And Demri Alonzo. To all of you, the shout of thanks. And, you know, in a real sense, I mean, when we say humanize me, there's a very specific part of our humanity that we're trying to amplify here. And uh, it's the part that struggles against the part that we're afraid of. So thanks to all you guys who are in on this thing with us. All right, listen. There's another wonderful person that I'm going to talk to in a second. I, I want to share a conversation that I had with Gail Jordan. And the thing I like about Gail Jordan is that not that she's a deconverted Christian who's articulate about why she walked away from the faith. There's a lot of us. But what I love about Gail is, is that she has found a way to connect people that are in that moment and many of them struggling like crazy in the painful belly of the beast of their deconversions. And she is working with a bunch of fellow volunteers on recovering from religion. And we'll talk about it in the, con- in the conversation and there'll be stuff on the, on the website. It, but, but I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, as I said it to, to Gail at one point, um, after we, after we, I think turned off the recorders, so I was like, everybody, in my audience either needs to call the Recovering from Religion hotline, or needs to be answering it. There's something here for everybody. This is is a person who's talking about a really cool opportunity uh, that I don't think a lot of people know about and that I am thrilled to share with you. So I'm going to introduce you to a lovely person and a lovely idea and a lovely opportunity. I hope you dig it. This is me and Gail Jordan talking on the podcast. So, Gail, where are you right now? I'm in Tennessee. A- at your house? I live in Tennessee. I, I, at the moment, I live in Tennessee. Yes, just south of Nashville. And so, and of course, the is 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 recovering from religion. I mean, I don't think of that. Is is that even really a job that pays you any money, or do you, you just know, do it as a le- labor of love? From religion, yes. Recovering from religion is an entirely volunteer organization. Everybody from the board of directors to me to the volunteers, it's entirely volunteer organization. So that's that I do. I like the way you described it. That's a labor of love. Yeah. How long have you been doing it? About about three and a half years. I've been the executive director for about three and a half years. Were you connected to it before then? Like, were you, when, when you, I mean, I, I don't even know if I fully know your story, but like when you exited religion, was recovering from religion there for you? No, and that's actually part of one of my talks is saying, you know, how valuable would that have been when I was going through my, you know, my, my deconversion process. I was isolated here in the Southeast. Um, it, was, it was arduous for me. For some folks, you know, for a lot of folks it is. For me it was. It was arduous. And recovering from religion has a 24-hour telephone hotline. We have a 24-hour internet chat. And we, everything we do to build around those things 
seeks to answer the question, how can we help? We want to give people, and this is this is peer support. This is trained volunteers who want to listen and have you ask your questions with no judgment and to be able to provide you some resources and some compassion and some we, we don't we don't do a deconversion. We stay far, far away from that. It's not our job. It's not healthy. That's not the process. The process is to empower folks to make to, to develop those critical thinking skills and to give them resources so that as they have these doubts, they're able to process it themselves. There's no talking somebody out of religion that we try to do. We just uh, want to provide a kind, compassionate, patient, listening ear. Do most of the people that you encounter through that work, have they already finished their own deconversion? They're like, man, I'm out, I'm done, um, but I don't know what to do. Or are, or, or are most of them still in, 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 like, I don't know what I think, I'm confused. <laughs> That's, uh, it's perceptive on your part to kind of see the spectrum. And, and of course, as you would expect, we have, we have all, all of those, all of the above. The, Bart, I'll tell you that the, there's a, as you and I both know, there's a tremendous amount of emotional heavy lifting that accompanies doubting and leaving one's faith the, on the personal side. The release, the relinquishing of heaven, the, the relief of letting go of hell, the saying the final goodbye to people that you had not, that you, they, who had died, who you had not said a goodbye to, the release of the concept of this eternal parent who has a plan for your life. So there's a lot of work involved, as we know, but the but that's not the number one reason that people reach out to the helpline. And it won't surprise you to hear this. The number one reason that people reach out for help is fractured relationships. It's the loss of community. We get anywhere, we, we get folks anywhere on the spectrum from, as you described it, you know, those, just those very early doubts about, you know, the 6,000 years and the, the boat and the animals. And so they're just, it's something's not setting right to all the way through. I've been an atheist for years, but I've just experienced the death of someone and I am having this trauma over never seeing them again, whatever it is, I'm making these up, but, but you can see that people reach out to us everywhere. And it's not just, of course, it's not just Christianity because we're internet based. We hear from countries all over the world. Our helpline director recently told me that in a month's time, in the month of July, we, we received messages in the chat, the internet chat from 25 different countries. And so people are uh, everywhere. They're everywhere asking questions about their belief system and needing a place to find some resources. So when you came out of religion yourself, when you, you know, and, and it's funny because, you know, recovering from you know, religion such a broad word and it means so many different things to so many different people. Um, but, I, you know, you got to name it something. Uh -huh. um, and so right. when, when you, when you, what, what do you call it? Lost your faith when you were liberated? From I lost confidence in my faith. That's, that's, that's the language I use is I lost confident, confidence in the beliefs that I had. How old were you? I was 40, 40, 45. And I had my personal story it's 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 not terribly interesting it's not terribly uncommon my i i i was raised in the south and so i was going to church 
in utero. And, and, uh, and everybody I knew was a Christian and most everybody I knew was Southern Baptist. And so I married a Southern Baptist man and we had little Southern Baptist children. And I had all four of them in church. Every time the doors were open, my uh, husband and I were leaders in the community in the in the church community we taught sunday school and with the chairman of the committees and whatever we did and and when the children because i had four children pretty close together they were all teenagers about the same time and the four of them when they got to be teenagers came to me with normal christian teenager questions you know questioning the the morality of the bible questioning the academics of the bible because they were starting high school they were being exposed to people of different faiths they were um, see, see if you homeschooled them at all would have right, been different <laughs> right 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 and these were you know these were kids who we um I had always instilled in them a love of knowledge. And so when we found a new kind of bug, we would all, this was pre-internet days, we would go to the library and we would try to identify it and we would spend time looking at the globe. And there was so much that, that I fostered. We, I, I, we raised them on a farm and so they were exposed to the animals and their reproductive cycles. These kids were wide open. So when they came to me, I expected these questions that, you know, teenagers, Christian teenagers are going to have these questions. And I validated it and I said, all right, let's together, let's go see if we can find answers. And, and of course, the first place we looked was inside what I call the bubble. It was talking to our youth minister and our Sunday school teachers. And I myself was, you know, I was validating their questions, but I thought, you know, I never answered these the first time I had them when I was a teenager. So, so collectively religion has answers to those questions. They're not terribly satisfying, but they but it's baked in. They have answers to them. So we would come back together over time, the kids and I, and we would discuss. And at some point, we decided to look outside the bubble. So we looked at anthropology, and we looked at science, and we looked at psychology. We even looked at other religions. And all of the pieces started coming together. And each kid, according to their personality and their birth order, gradually said, I'm, I'm not, I'm just not buying this anymore. The first one was, um, he was the first one to go. And then the second one, more thoughtful, a little bit slower, but he, then he went and my, my girls at their own pace made their decision. And, and this was happening over their high school year. So about that time, they all started leaving me one after another for college. And, and I had to admit to myself that I was beginning to lose confidence in what I believed in. My husband was not accompanying us on this I, this this exercise that we had been doing. He wait, wait. I got I got to ask uh-huh. you. Okay, four kids. Uh-huh. They're fairly close in Very age. Very close in age. This is not about religion. This is about parenting. Like, were they talking to each other uh-huh. too? Uh-huh. Like, oh, of course. Was, or was each one okay? So, like, was it ever you and three of them or four of them sitting around the table and you're all in the conversation, or are you are you are you talking to one and then talking to another and then talking to uh, another? It was, it was all of that, all of the above. And 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 in the beginning, I, we had a very traditional religious household. So my husband was the head of the household. That's how, it ro- that's how it works. And I told him, I said, the children are asking these questions. You know, we have to confront this. And he... He was b- backing away from that. He said, it's it's slippery slope. That's not a good idea. You don't need to, um, don't, don't give them that kind of space. You know, it was a kind of authoritative and I didn't, we had a disagreement about that. And I said, I, they, they need to have answers. It's legitimate anyway. He didn't participate in this, in this progress that we were making. And so when the, 
when the time came that the children were leaving, and I knew I, our, our marriage was a traditional Christian marriage. And when I had expressed to him my be, the beginnings of my doubt, I knew that the marriage would be at risk if if I went all in, <laughs> because he was, you know, he was struggling with the kids, really struggling with the kids saying, yeah, I'm not going to church anymore, and I'm not going to do this. And so... Um, I, after yeah, the kids, you could see where it was going. You could see where it was going, and so I stayed, Bart. I probably stayed a year too long. I was in a dark place. I was making terrible choices, drinking a lot. Just, I, I was in a mess. I was still teaching Sunday school, and I was like, I don't believe this. I don't believe this. And so I stayed too long until until I f- and and all of my family were believers, and so. I knew I was. It was a. It was avoiding the inevitable, and I knew what was going to happen if I were to tell my parents and my brothers, and and I knew what was going to go down with the marriage, and all that happened <laughs> when I felt like I didn't have a choice anymore. You know, admitted to myself, admitted to them. It it all it all came crashing down. That you know, it's. I often am talking to people in the moment that you're just describing, mm-hmm, where mm-hmm. you sort of see it coming. And yeah. it's and, and and I always remember what an old minister friend of mine once said to me. He he said, I, I can kind of see you're gonna make a big change here. And he said, What I would really encourage you to do is to get out in front of it. Um, hmm. because if you try if you try to stay doing something that you can't do, he said, you'll get to the place where you'll run out of steam all at once. And you may end up, because you don't know how to exit your life, you may blow it up and you may do something really stupid and you'll hurt a lot of folk. And so it was so interesting. Like he was just, he was like, he said, the time to look for a landing field is not when you've run out of gas, when the the airplane (laughs) is running out of gas. He said, when you start to see what direction things are going and you, he said, he said, why you've still got a little bit of fuel to navigate. That's when you want to look for where you're going to land this thing. And is that what you did? Well, you know, it, it, it is. Um, but, but my migration out of Christianity was a slow and steady process of 30 years. You know, I, I, my faith right. died the death of a thousand cuts. Right. And, uh, and, I, and I passed through every form of heresy on my way to apostasy. So, so you know, and my wife was with me on that journey. Wow. Sometimes a little bit ahead sometimes catching up, but like we, we were in a conversation the whole time about it. And so, you know, by the time I finally came out, when I told people, yeah, there's nothing left of my faith. I'm, I'm, I'm post-Christian. Most of my friends were like, yeah, yeah, we knew you didn't believe in God. We wondered <laughs> when you'd figure it out, you know, um, because all the, all, you know, all, all, it would all been there. I hadn't, I hadn't, um, been quiet in my, in my process. Sure. Um, but, but I see people that, especially when your spouse isn't on the journey, Sometimes you got to go underground and you're thinking these right. thoughts and you're, you're reading this stuff, but you, you, you know, you're thinking, well, maybe I can recover. So I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to, <laughs> I don't say anything now and then I have to live with it. So I'm just, I'm going to see if I can fix this. And wow. then by the, by the time they realize they can't fix it, um, you know, and, and sometimes, you know, it's that they they feel so lonely. I mean, I've seen people that have affairs at that moment in their life mm-hmm. and the affair mm-hmm. really isn't about sexual mm. promiscuity. It's about sure. sometimes just finding a connection. And sometimes I swear it's about somebody going, I don't have the guts to blow. I don't have the guts to walk away from my life. So I'm going to, I'm going to wait until I get caught and then my life will just get blown up and I'll have no choice. <laughs> right. That's a good point. And that's, and, and we, 
we have a lot of those folks who are at those pivotal points reach out to us on the helpline. And so, so, so many of us, so many of us who serve as volunteers on the helpline have been through at least a similar journey. The, 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 the waypoints oh, yeah. may be just a little bit different. Our, our route is a little bit different, but you can see it follows some kind of a variety of patterns on your way out. And that's um, insightful that your pastor friend said it's it, when it's coming prepare now. It, I can't imagine I can't imagine in in my process having being able to do that because I denied it for so I denied it for so long and then when it happened then I still was denying it. So so that approach would have been a much healthier approach. Besides your kids, did you have anyone to talk to? Zero. I didn't know a non-believer except for my children. I didn't know one, which is why, which is why I stayed in too long. And I and I had the dream life. I had the big house and the the, the husband and the whole thing. I mean, it it was when I say it crashed and burned. I mean, it, my whole life changed because religion affected my whole life. It drove everything. It drove what I valued and how I lived and how I managed my sexuality and what I wanted to do with my life. And so when the whole thing came crashing down and it became clear he was not going to be able, he was an unequally yoked kind of a guy. And it was, and we, we both cried the day we got a divorce. We both still love each other, care for each other. He's remarried to a Christian lady and he's still religious and, you know, awesome. Um, I, that's when I, that's when I sort of reinvented myself as middle-aged women do when they get divorced and went to law school and went a different direction. And now 10 years out, 15 years out, whatever it is, uh, it's fine. It's fine. At the time, you know, just, oh, coming out to my parents and my brothers and they were both angry and hurt. And it was just such a train wreck. And once again, you didn't have anybody there no, to guide no, I, you. no. Because there's, no. There, I mean, and there's just, ways of coming out that are less damaging, right. and then there are ways that are <laughs> a lot, leave a lot more wreckage. And uh, you know, that's I mean, that's a lot of what I do on this show. You know, oh, I, we, boy, we do yes. whole conversations about like, look, if you're going to come out, here's a few things. Don't make these mistakes. <laughs> and and so often I get calls from people like, man, I wish you'd have been there uh, a right. couple years ago. You know, and so you didn't have anyone to kind of keep you from. You know, just to help you help you navigate. No, no, those were early internet days, and so so I found myself on the internet all of the time because, and then I and then when I finally admitted to myself, not only do I not believe this anymore, but I'm not going to live my life this way. Then I had the 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 twin things that were happening is everything was collapsing at the same time. But Bart, I discovered my recovery was launching at the same time. So I had this building come in crashing down, but I was building this other building as fast as I could. So those were simultaneous for me. I went immediately to my first secular convention because I just was starving for who are these people and how I need to talk to these people and I need to know how they live their lives. And I was new to everything. As I said, religion was so powerful to me. It influenced my politics. So I made a 180 degree turn from the politics that I had had most of my life. I, I, I had to even down to little things like figuring out what am I, how am I going to make charitable donations. If I don't give this 10% to the church, what do I, how do I manage my, my giving to other people? There were so many little pieces of it that I was learning how to rebuild. And it was that time 
was both crushing to me emotionally, but the most exciting time of my life. Well, and that's the thing, like you're a builder by nature, you know, you're an entrepreneurial go get it. Like you were that lady in the church that ran all the committees and, you know, of course. Yeah. So, so I mean, and that's the thing is that for, for, for people like you, there is a moment where like everything's getting crushed away. But I mean, you would probably be the same way in the aftermath of a nuclear holocaust where you'd be like, this is right. horrible. Okay, like who's still alive? What are we going <laughs> to do, yeah, next? Are we do next? That's like, right. And so, That's and right. so your creative juices would get going again. Other people, they just lay down and, and they just curl up in a ball and they just don't know where to go. Um, oh, gosh. And, yeah. and so. And we see that on the helpline as well. You know, we see we're different responses. Some people are just paralyzed by it. Even if it's even if it's going to only be temporary, there's still a moment when it's just everything changes every. And 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 Bart, so often I think that we do our believing brothers and sisters a disservice when we don't recognize that this process has a lot of grief that accompanies it. Losing the parent, the eternal parent, I don't mean your your your, your physical parents, using, losing that parent who adores you and loves you, has a plan for your life, understands you, made you, accepts you, all those things, that's grief. Losing the Disneyland that we all get to go to after we die. There's grief there. And, and, and I think that sometimes we, we, we want to leapfrog over that and go, oh, well, because, because for most of us, there is so much more light and air and space and warmth on this side. And, and we're so excited about it. And life is, you know, it's kick-ass now and there's things you could do. And, and to, and to have your life guided by compassion and reason is so thrilling. And yet if we, if we push too hard and too fast and we don't let people grieve what we grieve when we lose religion, there's a lot that's crap that we're glad to let go of, but there is a grieving process. Even though later we look back and go, why did I ever think that was a sad thing that I don't have this eternal God looking down and judging me at the time it is valuable to you and you do grieve it. I don't now, but you do. And I think we sometimes do when well, and and, and, and your grief is your grief is going to be really, in some ways, how you feel about it is going to be tempered on whether you find a new thrill or whether you don't. True. And like, not everybody finds that thrill. Sure, and you get stuck in that grief for a while. Yeah, yeah, and 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 you define yourself by what you're not and why what you've lost rather than where you're headed. And again, like I, I meet a lot of, you know, I meet a lot of people who what they've lost isn't so much just all that heavenly stuff of somebody who loved you and had a plan for your life. But they also on a very practical level, they were like, I had a place to go on Sundays and Wednesdays. Right. You know, I was part right. of the basketball league and and, uh, you know, I had an identity there and 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 there isn't necessarily a ready replacement for that, um, especially if you're not socially. Uh, sure. You know, skilled. Church covers a multitude of <laughs> relational weaknesses. Um, right. For people that aren't aren't necessarily, you know, well-trained in and, and, the connection thing. And, and, and we see that. We see that. We we have, after after a client comes to us through the helpline, through the, either the telephone hotline or the internet chat, we have an online community. And once they have a chat and we see that they might benefit from speaking to other folks 
who are on a similar journey. Our agents are trained. We don't do a lot of self-disclosure as agents as we take these helpline calls because for, for various reasons. But when we then invite them into the online community and they self-select which groups to which they choose to belong, sometimes multiple groups, LGBT or Baptist or um, Seventh-day Adventist, whatever your little corner of the world is, they choose to be in those groups, and that's where they can have conversations with other folks who are maybe a little farther along on the journey, maybe not, where where there is some self-disclosure. They can tell their stories. They can they can bemoan, and they can rejoice, and they can do that in, in everybody's little unique community because all of our religions have unique language and unique experiences. Yeah. And so we see that sometimes that's helpful to see someone who's just a little bit farther along and to see that there's oh, yeah. hope, this this loss that you and I just talked about, the loss of community and instant social interaction and a place to go on, as you said, on Sundays and Wednesdays, a place to play on a softball team with all of the things that church provides. It, it, it Sometimes being a part of these communities gives our clients just a little bit of hope that, hey, there's a person who's relaunched. We even have one of our channels is even called the Reconstruction Channel, all about putting the pieces back together and starting over and going from here. It's, it's so interesting that I love, I, I hadn't thought of this, but I, it's so brilliant not to have your agents do much self-disclosure in the beginning. Um, oh, sure. I'm sure there's safety reasons and all sorts of, but like, but mm-hmm. on some level, mm-hmm. if I call that hotline, if that person just asks me questions and listens to me, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I can assume that they are all-knowing, that they are wise, that they have gotten through this transition, that you know they got their act together. If they open up and start telling me their story, I might get scared. You know, uh, you know, and so in some way, like there's a certain amount in which, you know, cause we all seem really intelligent when we're just asking, asking the right questions. Sure, it's sure. when we start to tell our own stuff to people go like, that guy doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> um, and so I think that's brilliant in terms of building confidence in somebody who might be making a very difficult first call. I think sure. the idea of sort of saying, listen, just ask a lot of questions, uh-huh, you know, uh-huh. um, you know, respond in this way, but don't, you know, you don't need to put yourself into the conversation too much. That just strikes me as kind of like genius. That was, uh, you know, that's been part of the process on us figuring that out because, and and you've hit on the reasons. Part of the reason is you don't want to divert any of the time away from this person's need to, you know, very often, Bart, they'll ask that. The clients will say, you know, well, what's your background or where do you come from? Agents are straightforward. They say, you know, we don't do a lot of self-disclosure here but we have this online community. And if you want to engage in these other conversations, then you're welcome to join this. It's just, it's just good practice, but it's, um, you'll, f- and you want to give the person every opportunity to be able to, you know, that we know what, we know what therapy is. We know what talk therapy is. This is not professional therapy by any means. This is peer support, but we know the value of talking it through, getting your thoughts together so that you can even know yourself what it, where it is you are. So when, yeah. when the agents who are trained to ask those kind of probing questions, you know, how are you feeling about this and how are, how are you doing with this? It just gives them this little, this little soft place to be able to process that. 
And so the self-disclosure piece became, it became pretty evident immediately that that was going to be, that was just part of the structure that was going to be necessary in order to facilitate these calls. So, so what if I call in on that hotline? I have this mm-hmm. conversation, you listen and you sort of say to me, hey, we've got an online community and stuff like that. And I say, yeah, but like, I just need, I need to talk to somebody more. I need mm-hmm. more conversation. Like, what's your referral? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. do you refer people to coaches, to counselors, mm-hmm. to like, wh- Where do we go who, do you send, who do you send people to? Mm-hmm. That's a good question, Bart. The first thing they do when they call the 184-I-doubt-it hotline number, <laughs> after they talk to us, if, if it's helpful for them, they can call us as often as they'd like to. If they're getting some, if they're getting something out of the telephone conversation, But they'll get somebody different the every time. Chat, they'll get a different person. And because we, we don't, we have we have aliases, we have names. If they want to use a name, which people do, then we just have aliases. And so they may or may not get the same agent because we're 24-hour. And of course, we have dozens of trained volunteers. And so the likelihood of getting the same counselors, not, you know, the same agent is not, is not very high from time to time. But not only do we have the online community, and that might be a place for them, but we also have local support groups in a lot of towns because we recognize the need to have people in the room. And so in, in, in a lot of major cities, cities, we have um, support groups, our local support groups. I lead the one here in my town, and it's a support group. We meet about once a month at a couple, for a couple of hours at our local library, and now we do the, the support group version of the helpline, where it's a place to ask questions. These folks are sharing their journeys. Sometimes they have things in common with folks that are there. Sometimes these people have been coming to the support group meeting once a month for three years. That's okay. Sometimes they come twice, and I'm I'm through the worst of it, and I can launch and I can do my thing. So we have these support groups located in cities all across. In addition to that, we're not um, we're not so defensive and protective that we're not willing to say, "Hold on, just a minute. Let me Google." Um, Freethinker meetups in your area. If you don't mind sharing the city where you're from, I can look and see if we've got anybody. I can look and see if there's a secular student alliance. Maybe it's a student that's that's you know that's reached out to us. Wait just a minute and let me see what's available in your area. If you Isn't don't that, mind, that's sharing. such a crapshoot, though. That's such a crapshoot. Because like, like, when I when I came out of faith, I, I I started going to those groups, and boy, some of them were. Deadly, hostile, <laughs> a bunch of wow. angry atheists. No, they were just they were just folks that were. I mean, that I walked in. I thought, like, oh my gosh, if th- if this is my future, I don't want to go there. Uh, that's um, a good point. That's a good point. And of course, there's not an endorsement that comes with it, other than here's what I've googled and found in. Yeah, your you're area. just helping people you know, do what they would have to, to do for them themselves. In the, sure, in the directions of things, we um, we're trying something brand new. We're doing a weekend recovery retreat. So if if they're anywhere in the, it's it's located in the southeast. We're doing this weekend um, religion recovery experience. We're so excited about it for the first time. This is in September in North Carolina. And and so recently as callers have called in and because we are located, because this retreat is located in North Carolina, it's within driving distance of a tremendous number of people. You know, it's, it's yeah. anywhere on the Eastern seaboard, you can make it to this retreat weekend. And that's something that RFR is, you know, that's our, that's our gig. And so we've encouraged them to consider attending that. And that, that's a a great resource to be able to put that out. I got to tell you, you got to be careful on that thing. Okay. No, because I have this buddy in Utah named John DeLynn, who- Uh I know John. Right, John. And John used to run these retreats for Mm -hmm. Mormon, you know, ex-Mormons. 
Right, right, right. And he said they were great. He said, but a lot of times they turned into sort of like sort of sexual orgies um, <laughs> because all these people were vulnerable and they were opening up for the first time and they were like, and there are no rules. And and he said they weren't emotionally prepared for this. There, there, there was no structure to, and he said, you know, people, people got into some relational things that they weren't, emo you know, and, and it's not that I have all these kind of sexual taboos or hangups, but I am sort of like, you got to recognize that when people are in a very emotionally vulnerable state, that might not be the best well, moment. I, 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 I appreciate that. I will tell you that we have a secret weapon against that. We have Dr. Daryl Ray, who wrote the book on sex and God. <laughs> and I mean that quite literally. The title of the entire weekend is called Embrace Your Nature because religion so often um, gets you to work against your nature. Yes, it yeah. interrupts it. it. It inserts itself between you and human nature. And that has to do with a natural humanist morality. It has to do with our sexuality. It has to do with the with everything. And so, sorry, uh, it, it interrupts our, it interrupts that natural process. And so, and so it, by, by saying embrace your nature, we're even having it in a retreat setting, cabins and bonfires and the whole thing, because we so isolate ourselves from that. Religion sometimes will isolate us from that because of this dominionist theology. Instead of, instead of in, integrating ourselves into the natural world, you know, we want to have dominion over it. And so for every aspect of that, one of our, our workshop tracks are all about reconnecting with what it means to be a human being, reconnecting to what it means to be a human being without the intrusion of religion, which subverts so much of that natural process. Oh, that's good. I mean, I, 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 I mm -hmm. can't think of a better theme than embracing right? our nature. Right. You know, I, no, it's, that's, I mean, that's so much of what being, you know, people sometimes say, you know, if you weren't going to call yourself a humanist, what would you call yourself? And I said, well, I call myself a naturalist. That's a good word too. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, Ursula Goodenough, the great bi biologist who I, I I always love and quote. Um, she wrote this book called The Sacred Depths of Nature, and she called herself a religious naturalist. She said because I think that nature is all there is, you know, sure. matter and energy, and the and she said, but I think it's worthy of my religious devotion. Wow. Um, and uh, and 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 so I I think that. That is such a great theme. Now, when is that retreat? Tell me again. It's the it's September 19, 20, and 21. I think I said that wrong. September 20, 21, and 22. It's in the mountains of North Carolina. And the website, our, our recoveringfromreligion.org website, has an entire page devoted to it. And it'll show you the cabin choices and the weekend schedule and then the cost. We even have some of our most generous donors ha are willing to subsidize the folks that are willing to attend People. that are having a, a financial struggle. So there should be no barriers to any of that. It's, um, and so if, and I'm going to be on, yeah. I'm going to be honest uh -huh. here. Okay. Because I have, I have conversations with all sorts of people mm -hmm. on this program and some of them, like I bring them on so that they'll challenge me and teach me things and push me. And I, but I wouldn't necessarily endorse anything. Um, this, like, I know you, I know Daryl, mm -hmm. and for for want of a better word, this is a very humanize me friendly gang. Uh, completely aligned of, with what you're trying to do with humanize me, Bart. Yeah, completely aligned with it. Yes. Th this whole thing about 
yeah, fi- figuring out how to build your life around loving relationships and making the world better for other people because you're convinced that this is the only life that you mm-hmm. have, you know. And so I think sometimes people would think like, I, that sounds interesting, but like I don't want to go and be with one of these things where the, people are just going to make fun of Christians mm-hmm. all weekend mm-hmm. and make snide jokes about my mother. <laughs> right. Um, and I go like, no, this sound, this is really about, okay, you've come through, you're in the middle of, or you've come through a hard thing. How do you build something? How do you build a good life? Right. Right. Not only that, not only do we have our, our trained volunteer folks who are going to be in attendance, but because, because we have the Secular Therapy Project as part of Recovering from Religion, we'll also have trained therapists available. So we're trying to make this weekend everything it can possibly be in the lives of the folks who have reached out oh, to us great. and said, boy, I, 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 need some t- I need some time and space. I need a place to unpack this baggage. I need a place to sort this out. I need to know that I'm not alone. I need to know that I have some hope of, of relaunching and building a life. All of that is part of what we're trying to provide with and this. And I, I can think a lot of the people from the South, I, I meet people from there who feel very isolated. They're in their small town. They're the only one they know. And of course, they're not the only one, but they're the sure. only one they know. And and they so know. this will be a place where people can have a flesh and blood encounter where they can see somebody else breathing and 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 and, and know that they're not alone in the world. I, t- I try to say if, if, if you have been a religious person and you know what that retreat experience feels like, this is that, except you take out all the unnecessary religious stuff. It's the, it's the, you know, chats long into the evening around the campfire. It's the, um, the joy of disconnecting from the screens and from the phones and all the things that a retreat weekend is supposed to be, but it's not in the context of a religious retreat so that you're communing with yourself. You're communing with other human beings. You're communing with nature. You're you're out there experiencing all that, and oh, so yeah. it's 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 our hope that this is going to be an annual event. We are, you know, we're we're going through this. We're sort of building it by the seat of our proverbial pants, so to speak, pulling it together. But we are so looking forward to what you know, it could you know, potentially. Gail, when I was at USC working with the students there, the second year I was there. I, I, I scratched and clawed and convinced the kids, none of whom had ever been on a retreat before. And we went on a weekend retreat together. Uh-huh. And it was so galvan, you know, it did all those things that any good retreat does. Oh. And, and, and the kids thought I was magical because they thought like, this is brilliant. <laughs> You've Whoever, this. How did you ever <laughs> think of this? This is brilliant. And we, we feel so much more connected, you know, I mean, cause they, cause they were like, they were like, we sang songs. They were like, we played games and, 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 sang and, songs. and they just, you know, and we, we did cabin time and they just, they, and it was, they thought I had invented fellowship. Um, and, uh, so this, That's yeah, so this is, this is brilliant stuff. Now, now I got one more, like I know you got a hard stop that I'm aware of, uh-huh. and uh-huh. I know the I know the audience of this podcast pretty well, and there's lots of people in that audience who would be great volunteers on your phone line. Uh-huh. They're thoughtful, uh-huh. Uh-huh. loving people uh-huh. that have a background in ministry and but also a background in deconversion. What does it take uh-huh. to become? A recovering from religion volunteer, or to start one of those groups in your own local community. What what what's the process? How do I get? I mean, is it just what what do I do? Thank you for that question, Bart. 
it's it's really straightforward. Recoveringfromreligion.org. There's a volunteer tab right at the top. It it's not a surprise that there's going to be a little bit of a process. There's an application. There is an interview process. There may be references, and there's a little bit of training. Once we've got got you know, obviously we're careful of who we let in because imagine that. Imagine if you if you let um, we we throw around the word trolls and and it's shorthand, but we know what we're talking about. Imagine if you if we weren't careful about our volunteers and let someone in who had different motivations than we do. So so there's a process. There's no doubt there's a process involved. But once you get in, once you go through the interview process and go through our short it's short amount of training videos and different things to get you trained and ready to take your first phone call or take your first chat. This is a pay it forward armchair activism at its finest because it's 24-7. You can choose your schedule. There's no there's no minimum shifts that you have to sign up for. There's no, okay, well, I can't be available at 11 o'clock, but maybe you're just there. We have enough folks that are behind the scenes that are waiting for those chats to pop up, waiting for the phone to ring. If you can take one, we have a process in place that says, hey, I'm online. I can take this call. I can take this chat. And that's the way we fill. That's the way we take the chats. And those sometimes 15-minute conversations, sometimes 10, sometimes 25-minute conversations are, I can't tell you the gratification that comes along with being a, a, a trained agent. I continue to do it because it keeps me grounded in what we do, taking those calls and chats. It's, we can have you, we can have you from the time you click the volunteer button through until you finish your training and you're ready to take the first call. If, if we can get it all done, it's just a matter of a couple of days. Sometimes it takes a little bit longer just because of logistics, but it is the most, it is so gratifying. Recoveringfromreligion.org and check, click on the volunteer tab. Well, listen, I don't want to out anybody's name, but I've got this buddy mm-hmm. up in Columbus. And uh, when I first sort of became publicly known, he reached out to me and he was just, he was in the process and he, and he was headed mm. for a dark space and he ended up yeah. in that dark space and, uh, and he came out of it. Um, a deconverted person who, you know, he lost a lot of stuff and wow. didn't have a career and, you know, he'd been a minister and all this stuff. Anyway, he came out of he, his, his wife and he stayed together. They went through the process together. They're doing really well. He's got a good job now. Lots of good things uh-huh. happened to him in his life. And uh, he, at, at the time when, he, when I first met him, he had all these dreams of starting a secular church and, you know, he's going to be the leader of this and running all that. And uh, I caught up with him a few months ago and he said, he said, you know, he said, I, that was all overly ambitious. I mean, it's just, it's, 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 it turns out it's actually kind of hard <sighs> just to keep your life together. Sure. As a human being, um, harder than I thought. But he said, this recovering from religion thing, he said, I run a group. And he said, we actually run it out of my house now because he said, I'm an old house church person and I didn't like doing it in a bar. I thought it, it would oh. be better if it was homey. And he said, over the last two years, he said, we've probably had 500 people come oh through our goodness. house. Um, and he said, you know, some of them come once, some of them mm-hmm. come every time. Mm-hmm. Um and he, he just started telling stories about what it meant to people to do it. And, and so I was so proud of him because, you know, he's a former minister who's found a new ministry. Um, and this fabulous. is his ministry. And it can be that straightforward, that simple, just having folks in your home. To This is just a, you know, this is just talk therapy. This is peer support. Let's talk about it. One of the questions I ask my group is to say occasionally, you know, what's, 
What's standing in the way of your having a, the happy, healthy, productive life that you want to have? It's a, it's a, you know, it's a generic peer support therapy question. And it, and you can't imagine the things that people will, will share and reveal and work through. Oh, it, it's wonderful. Well, you know, I, I think, I mean, so first of all, I'm so proud of him, but I'm sure. also so proud of, of you and Daryl because oh. without that structure, without that, that, like that name and the connections, you know, people find him through sure. recovering from religion, you know, without the structure, he wouldn't have this ministry and mm-hmm. this, this way of serving other people and this, and this, and, 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 you know, it's doing wonders for he and his wife's sense of identity and self too. They're like, oh yeah, here's, this is, you know, we know who we, you know, you never really know what you're doing until you teach it to somebody else or you share sure. about it with somebody sure. else. And he's like, you know, and this is what I, you know, this is a way that we, I find meaning. And so, so anyway, I'm proud of him. I'm proud of you. But the other thing is, um, as I think about this, watching him do this work, I just find myself thinking, how many people are there out there for whom that those simple therapy questions, how many times have I asked somebody, like, I'll just say, so who have you told about this mm-hmm. besides me? And they'll say, nobody. <sighs> or, or I'll say, what's the one thing, like, what do you hope to accomplish in your future? And they said, you know, Bart, nobody's asked me that question in two years. Wow. And I just think it's an incredible thing for you to have created a structure where people get asked these questions because it's incredibly important to be asked by somebody who really wants to know the answer and that prompts you to do the thinking that you need to do. I just love that. I j- and, and there are times when folks will reach out to us and say, you know, do you have a group in the, in the Atlanta area? No, we don't have a group there yet, but we have another person who asked not too long ago, would you like to be connected with that person and be able to talk about maybe the two of you can lead the group together? Just simple, straightforward stuff. And these are not, these are people who are seeking to find the help and they end up turning around, leading a group, and then they too get the help that they need. So, so it, it, it can work all the way around. And I hear what you're saying about the value of not just giving them a place to be, but but the but the earnestness and the desire. Tell me what's happening. Tell me what's going on with your life. Share with me what you would like. What are you struggling with? And that being asked, it's it's uh, it's so much more valuable. So than often, that's what people tell me they miss about being a part of a church mm, or a youth group. Wow! Is this that there was this guy and he took me out to coffee and he would say, "What's going on with you and your girlfriend?" Right. Or you know, "How's it going?" And you know that and 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 the agenda was, "I'm trying to help this person grow in." Christ. Sure. But, but, and, and, but in that process, you would be asking all these questions and you'd be showing interest in their life and they would feel loved. And the, and the question, you know, the thing is, is that so often there's nobody trying to help this person grow in humanity. And I really feel like the asking those questions and creating that structure is in a sense saying, Hey, somebody's going to go, how's your recovery going? It's almost like a sponsor in AA. How's it going with you? What what do you what are you working on? How's it going in that relationship? Well, and this goes back to what we identified earlier that there that that's a loss, Bart. That's a loss in a person's life is to not feel like they're cared about. That 
whether the motivation was, yes, helping them grow in Christ, yes, but but what you were actually doing was making this human connection and being and caring, genuinely caring about what was going on with them. And when and when church drops out of that, it takes yeah. effort. Sometimes genuine care drops effort. out. Yes, it does. And so, and I believe we care about one another. Certainly those of us in the secular community, we deeply care about one another, but we forget that sometimes that takes work and time and fostering and effort. And that's a piece that we need to recognize as humanists on this side of the religious equation to say, you know, whether you have the big structured secular church or whatever it is you're doing with your community, these relationships take effort and they do take time and they do take a give and take. And, and so we could all benefit from recognizing the importance of that. The sacrifice there's, you know, that, that there's not much good that goes on in the world and there's not many people that get loved from your, your kids and your grandkids onto everybody uh-huh. else. Nobody gets loved without somebody making a sacrifice. Wow. Um, love and sacrifice go together. And that, you know, that's one of the reasons why the Christian gospel resonate that, that that's the part that always resonated to me when they, when they would say like, Hey, there's no such thing as love without sacrifice. I would go like, yeah, instinctively, I know that's sure. true. Sure. And, and it's still true once you when it's, it's true not on a natural level mm-hmm. too, naturally. Mm-hmm. Nobody gets mm-hmm. loved without sacrifice, and it's the nature of nature of human relationships. Yes, it's the nature. Yeah, it is. And so, therefore, you know, when we when we talk about recovering from religion, you know, yeah, it's a place to connect and it's a place to find some some hope and stuff like that. It's also for some of us who are looking for it. It's a place to make a a dignified and a meaningful sacrifice for your fellow Hmm. human beings. Mm -hmm. It's a place where you can Mm -hmm. give. It's a place where you can serve. And I think offering people an avenue where they can meaningfully put some skin in the game, put some hours out there, cry with some people, listen to some people. I think that, I think, I think the volunteer opportunities that you're creating are every bit as significant and important as the, the, sort of a landing space that you're creating for people that have have come out that you think that and you're right about that our focus we're so client focused at rfr but your point about that it's as gratifying from the volunteer side as it is from the client side is absolutely true we've had we've had our volunteers share their stories and um whether it's on our blog or on our podcast talk about what it was like to to walk alongside somebody, even if it was figuratively because it was on the helpline or the chat line, to be able to walk with someone as they're processing this and, and making this journey is just so gratifying because all of us recognize what that would have felt like had we had that when we made our, you know, when we made our journey. Yeah. All right. So here's the thing. I'm looking at my clock. I know I'm up against a hard stop. I'm going to honor that. <laughs> I'm going to say a couple of things. First of all, all the stuff that you're talking about, the retreat, the hotline, the chat line, all that stuff, we'll have links for all that on the show notes for this show. So that stuff's all, all going to be the, the, the numbers and everything. Um, the other thing is, you know what people won't know? They won't know unless I tell them that we had this wildly interesting woman on the show a couple years ago. Um, her name was Glenda. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and people still say to me, Hey, remember when you had that Las Vegas entertainer on your show and that was so interesting and she pushed back on you and all stuff. And, and, and now they hear this like lovely Southern Baptist mother of four and they're not necessarily going to make the connection unless we tell them that that's your daughter. 
that's my daughter. That's my daughter. And Bart, she, she is as um, a remarkable person as, as she appeared to be. If anybody's listening and heard her show, she is that remarkable. She pushes me all the time. She keeps me, oh, she yeah. keeps me grounded. She makes me think she, um, yeah, she's outstanding. And yeah, that's my daughter. That's my daughter. She and I, uh, we're a lot alike in some ways and we're very different in other ways, but she is one of the lights of my life. She's just awesome. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm excited to know you both, and I'm so glad you took the time to, to talk with me. Um, I, I very seldom are my shows like so clear, like almost like interviews where like, tell me more about recovering from religion, you know, but <laughs> in this case, I, I got a lot of people who need to have this as, as, as a tool in their toolkit. And so I'm just so glad Wonderful. for you for putting it there. Oh, I am so grateful for the opportunity. I will see you somewhere. I don't know if it'll be at NanoCon again, because you, you'll be up in the Pacific Northwest, but That's like- That's right. Some convention or another. Another will come across and maybe each other. When, when, when you get up there, if you get anywhere near Seattle, um, I want to send you to visit my friend Ryan Meeks at the East Lake Church, which is going to be outstanding. Uh, it's going to be one of the most favorite places you'll ever go. Oh, I can't wait to do it. Well, I will keep that in mind. I'll write that down and I'll remember it and we can connect and get that, get that arranged. All right. Much love to you. Thanks so much for Thank talking. Thank you, my brother. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. There you have it. I enjoyed that conversation. I like that woman. And I'm looking forward to hearing stories from people in our audience who call that hotline, who send a chat message, who volunteer and find a a new sense of purpose in listening to others. I I, I think good things are going to come out of this podcast. Maybe you even go on that retreat. Maybe even go on that retreat. Anyway, if something good happens to you in the context of recovering from religion, I want you to tell me about it. Um, and uh, I want you to come back and listen to the show again. And I hope that when I gave you all those podcast suggestions last time, that that, that didn't take you away from me. Uh, there, there's an old poem, you know, if you love something, set it free. If it comes back to you, it's... It's truly yours, and if it doesn't, it never was. And I guess that's how it is when you recommend podcasts on your podcast. Anyway, I hope you come back. I'll see you next time on Humanize Me. For more on BART, go to bartcampolo.org. If you like this podcast, please consider supporting it every month and get extra content for it. Go to patreon.com slash humanize me. Our patrons do make the show happen. Follow us at Humanize Me Pod on Twitter and Humanize Me Podcast on Instagram. You can also join other listeners on our private Facebook group. Just search Humanize Me on Facebook. To ask your own question on the show, leave it as a voicemail at 424-291-2092. That's 424-291-2092. And finally please review us on iTunes. It really helps. Catch you next week. Humanize Me is a production of Jux Media. Hey, you could be larger than life.